All right, welcome back to yet another episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, before we talk about the fireside chat that brought us here, I'm going to let our guests introduce themselves. And because we are all gentlemen, allegedly, theoretically, we're going to let Miss Joelle Presby go first. Why, thank you. Yes. Um, as as it was explained to me, when I received my commission in the Navy, I also became a gentleman by act of Congress. Just ah, see, there you go. <laughs> so, um, yes, I, I was in the Navy for six and a half years after being commissioned by the United States Navy. I served on the John S. McCain, uh, Arleigh Brooke out of then Yokosuka, Japan. And then I was on the Dwight D. Eisenhower, a, a new aircraft carrier out of Norfolk, Virginia. Nice. Um, All right. I, I write some books. I've written the Dabare Snake Launcher, my, my own solo novel. Which is a fantastic novel, by the way. Thank you. I'm Jim Thanks. Curtis. Uh, 20 plus years in the Navy. Hello. Uh, half of it enlisted, half of it commissioned, half of it in the Atlantic, half of it in the Pacific, and all of it in aviation. So <clears throat> a slightly different perspective than what Joel has. <laughs> and I've got well, uh, 13 books out, been in 16 anthologies so far, and I'm writing currently in three different series. That's what we call an overachiever or like Project ADD. I'm not sure what. Right. Bored and broke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fair, fair. What about you, Josh? Well, if his was slightly off, mine's way off because I was in the Air Force, not in the Navy. And uh, I was stationed in Wyoming for all six years that I was in the Air Force. I never got to go any place. I worked uh, nuke missiles for six years uh, and uh, then got out and uh, did law enforcement for. Uh, well, I'm still doing it, but full time for about 12 years, and and now I'm technically retired from there, and I just write. Um, so um, I've got uh, 10 novels out, uh, published, like 20 anthologies, I think, and I've got a couple in the pipe. Nice. And I love you on your show. Thanks for inviting me back. Well, you write Believable Space Navy, so I figured you were qualified, and so... Aside from being everybody's favorite lovable basic bitch grunts, I was actually in my first MOS in the Army, was watercraft operator. The Navy calls us bosun's mate, sail army, by the way. Uh, we actually at one point in time had more boats than the Navy because boats a specific thing. Uh, after 9-11, the Navy decided that maybe we shouldn't have let John Kerry close all of our watercraft units. So they started <laughs> re-standing up their riverine squadrons, buying, I don't know if they buy them or just take them, but they took most of the boats I trained on back into the Navy. Um, and so I did, I was technically qualified as a watercraft operator, bosun's mate. My, uh, my stepdad spent 23 years in the Navy enlisted as an engineman. So I had to get even and enlist as a bosun's mate. There's like that rivalry thing going on. And then uh, I ended up shooting so good, they sent me back to the infantry. But I did, for a hot minute, drive a boat around the harbor. So that counts for something, I guess. It does. It um, does. I mean, I drive a Tritune. I, that I mean, counts. I, I mean, I don't shoot torpedoes off of it or nothing, but I can pull a mean tube. Well, now, do you, do you like, put an eye patch on and go, arr, every now and then, just to I realism? 
Sometimes oh, I, go and I step on the front thing and I put my my foot higher, so I do like the captain, whatever the captain Jack, Captain Morgan. Yeah, the Captain Morgan. Yep. The see. Yeah. clearly uh, you need to up your alcoholism game. That is not Navy quality right there. They would have known that. I don't do hard liquor when I'm driving a boat for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually uh, the funny thing was the uh, the Army was big at least when I went through in the uh, late '90s. They were really big on making sure you could get certified at everything. So the Army schools were not for watercraft operator, but the Navy's were. So I did my D, uh, damage control school with the Navy. So the guy that was teaching that class when he was a senior chief was actually an E1 seaman under my stepdad. So I got no into crap for that one. That was an experience. <laughs> nice. And, and uh, we got to play with the buttercup, which was fun. Apparently, they took a PT boat and they put it in a pool and you got to pretend uh, that it was real and try not to let it sink. Um, yep. So did you guys do that when you were in? I don't know how how uh, much that I've was out. The, in... I've done the buttercup trainer several times, yes. The funny thing, Josh, is they do it. You're, you, you lose if it gets up to the neck of the shortest person in your unit and your damage control team. And so I got the twins assigned to me that were like four foot ten, maybe. Like whatever the bare minimum to enlist, that was them. So we got to their so. neck first. Yeah, so we lost every time on the time thing because, you know, I didn't cheat hard enough, apparently. Nice. But the hard thing is, is when you got to cheat, you have to know what the rules are. And so the Navy guys had a, a leg up on us because they'd all done it before. So they knew all the shortcuts. It was totally unfair, but eh, that's life. Um, right. But anyway, now that we got our bona fides out of the way, the topic that brought us here is uh, Christopher Denote, who's a, an Air Force type, uh, and I were talking and we realized one of the complaints we had was that people write combat in navy fleet action and in ground combat in sci-fi it's always so clean and anybody who's even been camping knows you get dirty and everyone's like well maybe it's clean in space so that's different and then i looked at all of the pictures of my my stepdad in his navy coveralls while he was working on engines and not a single one of them were ever clean like they're grease stains stains everywhere and so i started thinking well you know we're not doing a very good job of making that stuff believable and hence the topic was born uh, and as I, I mentioned in the pre-show, I invited all of these people because they were either Navy or they write believable navies. So I thought it'd be a fun conversation for us to have. So we're going to start with, and, and you guys can all jump in in any order. Like, what's the one thing that'll break it for you? Like, nope, this isn't real. And you'll stop reading a mill sci-fi book that involves space fleets. My first first thing, uh, and I, I've found this in multiple books um, and usually I know within the first two pages whether or not I'm just going to throw the book across the room or keep reading. And that's if the ensign is either talking back to the captain or um, or saying something like, I, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't do that. Um, like having that kind of interaction doesn't happen. It, it just doesn't happen. If the captain is telling you to do something, you're going to do it. You don't even really have to think about it. And that really goes for any military uh, branch. If, a, if an officer is giving an order, unless that order is illegal or, or something that the under the, the subordinates just carried out, that's their job. That's your whole job. And when you have, uh, I think a lot of people watch like either the new Star Trek, um, like uh, the Chris, uh, Chris Pine, uh, Star Trek or or uh, even some of the newer um, like Star Trek Discovery or something like that and they watch that interaction and they're like oh yeah we're gonna do that but that's not really 
a space navy <laughs> that's not like that's not what you're looking for if you're going for a realistic space navy um and that'll throw me right out i even if they they the tech is right or the the the, the maneuvers or anything even if it's everything else is spot on you get that that conversation dialogue wrong between the characters i'm out yeah definitely yeah. The, the character issues are always <clears throat> probably the first thing i go to also and the fact that they don't have uh if they don't have chiefs okay senior enlisted that are pushing back yeah then immediately i'll drop the book right there yeah so and i, I the last thing is, if they're all getting along, <laughs> yes, one hundred percent. I I don't think I have specific red lines that cause me to drop a book, because um, for all of those cases, I I kept thinking, well, actually, I saw that in real life in this case, or I saw that here. So if if I'm enjoying the story for other reasons, because I've seen babies be really messed up in a lot of different ways, I, I will give the author a little bit more benefit of the doubt to see if, all right, is, is for example, the, the person who's being talked back to, are they... For, how, <laughs> you might need to cut this out. So in... And uh, Destroyer Squadron out of Japan, the time that I was there, the ships were not filled with the amount of manning they're supposed to have. But uh, there were still a number of people who sometimes need to be fired for cause. And when those people are officers or pe people are in the senior, senior chiefs or master chiefs, the destroyer squadron would still fire the people who needed to be fired, but they also need to be replaced. And the only way they could be replaced is if the destroyer squadron staff replaced those people. So that meant the destroyer squadron staff was filled with all the screw ups, but they're still in charge. Mm. So I learned as an ensign that we never do what squadron tells us to do. <laughs> Which, which you know, you see that in a book. If an ensign gets told something by by the squadron and they don't do it, that that's throw it across the room according to your thing. But I was taught that 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 if the squadron tells you something, you check with senior people in our ship first before you do that because they might get you killed because they're there because they did something really stupid on the ship they were originally assigned to. Well, so you know that's an interesting and dynamic that in the story to. Yeah, makes sense to put that in there. Sure, I think, and and I don't mean that you can't ever have conflict on the bridge of a ship, uh, or even in the in the internal workings of a squadron, because I think having that conflict is necessary, especially to keep it engaging for the reader. Uh, I just mean the 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 everyday kind of operations, or even going into a, a battle where you, you have stress levels that are that are going up. Of course, you're going to have uh, some pushback, or maybe even even the XO is second guessing. But if you're having like a helmsman su suggest to the captain, that's probably not the best move. Let's do that, especially in a in a in a gun in a running gun battle. That's probably yeah. not that's probably not unreal. That's probably unrealistic. Uh, unless yeah. you're going to have you know somebody's head explode in the next minute because for sure. Yeah, one hundred percent. 
that's one of the things that got me as if you see and, and you know I, I saw I saw an E4 who was quickly an E1 mouth off to the sergeant major <laughs> of the army uh, when I was in Iraq at a USO tour can telling him that he enlisted in the um, I won't say the state but he enlisted in the National Guard because he would never have to deploy they were just going to send him to college for free. Uh, and he was cussing out the sergeant major of the army, who was very polite, very professional, smiled and like, you know, I'd really like my staff to help you out. If you just give me your social security number and your your, your name and rank, I will hook you up. And by hook him up, he means take him to the brig and he filled sandbag for three months. And then he got to finish the tour he didn't want to be on in the beginning. And now he's just been longer at less pay. Right. So like, you can have like people mouthing off if there are natural consequences. Because if I had done that as an E1, right. my my sergeants would have done a little bit of wall-to-wall -wall counseling and we would have, we would have fixed that. Like that wouldn't have happened twice. Yeah. And, and so it can work if you have those chiefs that the Jim mentioned earlier in the background, like grabbing someone by the scruff of their neck and be like, listen here, kid, that's not how we do this anymore. <laughs> right. So well, and you've, you've always got the stressors too, between, mm -hmm. for example, on the ship, the black gang and the deck force and the operations people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so you've got three distinct groups that are always pushing against each other. You know, so can you explain? Can you explain what those terms are for people? Those for people who don't know what the black gang is, and they I'm just sorry. jump in. That might be a little confusing for them. Yeah, the black gang is your engineering gang. Okay, they're called the black gang because they never see daylight. They're on the <laughs> down there. <clears throat> okay, you got the the bosun's mates commonly called deck apes, and they are not your smartest uh, sailors, by and large. And their job is to keep the ship up. So the black gang is inevitably covered in grease. So they come up to eat or they come up to do whatever. They're tracking grease throughout the ship. <laughs> now the bosun's mates have got to go behind them and clean it up. And the, the engineers group, will, yes, go on. The third group is your operations and your bridge people. And they're the ones that never get their uniform dirty. They <laughs> sit in the air conditioned spaces. They monitor the systems. They do the hard jobs <laughs> on the ship. <clears throat> and Joel, I'm, I know your boat. <laughs> the, the engineers will claim that you have to pick between having the equipment clean or having it working. Indeed. Yep. Yes. And, and there's and always the operations that side will never understand that because their equipment is both clean and working. That right there is the perfect example of the pushback. Mm -hmm. And you can put that in a story to give your characters more depth and more realism. And quite honestly, it makes it entertaining. My yeah. favorite when I finished uh, AIT as a watercraft operator. Uh, my stepdad showed up and he he had the uh, the famous expression, uh, engine men don't make mistakes. Where did you park yours uh, to yeah. mock me at my own graduation? And that that's kind of sums it up like that rivalry, that back and forth. If you were if you guys are some of our listeners are army guys, that would be the equivalent of the uh, the infantry versus the Cav Scouts who tell you they're basically infantry. It's the same sort of rivalry. I, I'm sure there's something like the the plane crews and the pilots like the, those rivalries exist within a service in addition to the extra service rivalries yes. oh yeah well and in the navy you, you've got the airedales versus the submariners versus the the service, service. yes 
So how would those three types of communities that have those ships have very different missions? So obviously subs go below the water. The Airedales work on the flight portion of the aircraft carriers uh, or the helicopters that might be on the, the marine landing craft. And then the, the straight fleet battleships. How does that present itself in Space Navy where everything is essentially almost a sub and it's, you know, it's all buttoned up? Uh, JR, also, there's the aviators in the Navy who are never assigned to ships. But okay. I didn't that's know also that. a significant component. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was. I did one ship tour as an E3 and went, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was on the flight deck. Um, and there are several different ways of doing a naval metaphor into space. And yes, a lot of them are a lot like submarines, but you also sometimes have um, your your clacks, your your big ships that carry small ships that are somewhat like aircraft carriers with with fighter craft on board. And sometimes the the science is is a little more magicy to make that make sense, um, especially when you define it as, well, you have to be a big ship in order to, say, jump through wormholes or whatever it is, right. and little ships can't jump, and then we have a advance in technology in the storyline, and now the little ships can jump too, and you start to ask, well, then why do we even have big ships at all? Right. Yeah. And then if you throw in the missileers that are the protectors of the ship, mm -hmm. now you've got another component that thinks they're more important than anybody else, because you know they protect the ship. And a way that it doesn't fit at all for navies in space to be like submarines is in our actual submarines, a major part of being in submarines is being mostly not detectable by mm -hmm. things on the surface or things in space. Right. Um, and in general in space, in most story worlds, you are not undetected while you are transiting in, in anywhere near a planet. Of course, there are there are ways that you could be if you know you have Klingon bird of prey kind of cloaking in your story. Right. You can make that happen, or you can have for some reason people detecting on a frequency that if you're in line with the sun or you travel to make sure to be behind a planet while it's passing and you're very moving very very slowly that you can be hidden in space. But it it takes a it's not as easy as you just go below the thermocline in the in the water, and then they can't detect you anymore, like you can in the yeah. submarine. So it's a it's a little known secret, but Josh and I are actually classmates. We graduated from Hand Wavium University, class of twenty sixteen. Uh, <laughs> so we buddy. just we just we just wave our hands and make it happen. I've got my um, honorary doctorate in that. Absolutely, yeah. but well, um, yeah. if you pick one Hand Wavium and you're consistent with it, then everybody loves you, and it's good. Well, I like going like it's the uh, it's the rule of cool, right? Like it, yeah. you mentioned bigger ships carrying little ships. I actually um, I just finished my uh, third uh, complete series binge of Battlestar Galactica, the new one. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I say new, but it's like, I don't know, 10, 14 years old now. But, you hush uh, your lion mouth. We are not yeah, that old. No, it's 2004 is when it came out. So it's what uh, uh, almost almost 10 years old. And uh, I, I almost 20 years. Oh, 20. Holy crap. Yeah. Uh, um, I hate you all. 
Man, <laughs> that's nuts. Anyway, uh, I I absolutely love how they did it. Uh, how they did their their space navy, and of course, you only have the one ship until the Pegasus comes along too. But yeah. I I think that um, them and Battlestar Galactica and Battle Babylon Five, I thought got the closest to realistic fighter uh, battles. Because they don't do the Star Wars like flying around like you would in a, in a in a atmospheric fighter because their fighters can flip on dimes. Their fighters can flip on the thrusters and do right. multiple uh, like iterations of that. Um, now, of course, you've you've still got a whole bunch of other stuff that is just crazy, cool television like explosions and all that stuff. But um, a lot of people, a lot of the books that I read that are space navies. Um, they, I, I don't know if they purposely leave that alone or just aren't really keyed into that where it, you're not in the atmosphere. So you don't have to do like, you're not going to have a nine G like turn going around here where right. you're, you're not going to have that. You can literally just flip over and go, uh, like there's still inertia and stuff. But, um, I, I, when I do it, I try to keep it as small as possible. Because it's really hard to have, like, um, I think David Weber is probably one of the the biggest presenters of big battles that I've read. Um, when you get into like the big fleet battles between Haven and Manticore in the original, kind of like the yes. first what like eight book string of yeah. Honor Harrington, and you've got those big battles. Those are massive. Well, then when they get bigger, when you get into like book ten or eleven, it's literally they launch a million missiles and then scene because you can't do anything else with that. Like there's not like when they got in with the Sealax and all that other stuff, and they were doing like kind of more uh, fighter based. It wasn't really fighters, but kind of that base. There's a lot you can do with that because there's a lot of tension you could do with that. When you get into like I can't remember who said it. it was Michael Cooper. Well, it's Mal Cooper now, but uh, sh she was on our show many, many, many years ago. She was talking about the uh, the comparison between like modern Navy and what it would look like in the future in in far distant space when you have multiple star nations or whatever. The number of ships are going to be in the millions. Right. Because like it's not like one nation on Earth, like I don't know how many big ships the, the Navy has, let's say 400 ships the Navy has. Well, you, you've got to multiply that by like 10 if you're talking about a planetary system. So you're going to have, you know, a couple thousand ships for one area. And then if you're sending them to multiple systems, you're just going to there's just a lot of logistics to deal with. So I try to keep it as small as possible. I don't know that I, I I've talked to her. We've had that conversation when she's been on our show before too, when we were still the sci-fi shenanigans. Yeah. I, logistics are a thing. Like one of the things that, that they don't factor yes. in people that watch star Wars, for instance, and you see them blow up the death star or vinegar class cruiser. Like you're talking thousands of people dead in a blink. Yeah. You can't replace those people easily. Cause that takes training. There's a lot of man hours to train at every level. So unless you've got cloning or you've got some sort of like you're jacking their head into the matrix to, to teach them up real quick. Like there's a lot more logistics in just building the ship and even building ships takes time. I mean, sure. look how long it takes just to, to build a U.S. Navy ship, right? Like, we're talking years from keel to to launch. And so, yeah, robotics will, will take care of some of that. And, and, yeah, automation will take care of some of that. But I was in Iraq in sun, sandstorms, and I watched some of those automated systems fail when a little bit of grit gets into them. 
So yeah. you're never going to convince me that you can fully automate anything. Yeah. So I think I think there's some some downsides to that. Now, if we are cloning people, if we are you know doing things to make population grow, like maybe you could convince me that the larger navies are possible. But what you've actually seen seen from a geopolitical sociological standpoint is the more educated society gets, the less kids we're having. So where are all those babies coming from, right? Like at a certain point in time, you have to explain where the people to crew it are coming from, or you've got robots or something. For, well, for that always, large scope. It always comes back to the three things you've got to have. Man, train, and equip. Yeah. yeah. Now, those are the three key points. And logistics, that's that's something that very few people write well. Right. Because it's not sexy. It's fun. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to make it interesting to, to hear about. Right. Yeah. But So one way to do is, it. Go ahead. Go ahead. I would say one way to do it is so I like to write the everyman because you want to make it relatable to people. And that's my experience as you know, uh, with the military is you can have some lower seaman complainer or, or chief petty officer, whatever, complaining like, man, I could really use a resupply of X. And it doesn't take much to show one, we're factoring in logistics and two, sometimes that crap doesn't come when you need it to and you just got to scrounge. Yeah. Yeah. And often, especially if you're dealing with a more advanced sort of system, there is probably going to be rules like there are now about you can't just collect money from the wardroom and the wardroom is the name for the group of officers who are in charge of the ship and then go out into your the planet that you're visiting and go buy the gear that you need and plug it in using your machine shop to make it compatible even though um it now that i'm out long enough that i can't get in trouble for it that really does happen where you, all right, we need this piece of equipment. Our ship cannot get underway without it. We know that this chip is available on the open market. And we know that our machinists can, can do the extra pieces around that chip to make it fit. And so we're going to, everybody's going to put in $125 to get the, the 3000 we need. And we're going to go and pick the, the little shop that we think is least likely to have Chinese mal malware in the, the <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and we so, that, that we've done it right. So I actually did. So in the military, it's a big deal to go intra-service gear transfers. So mm -hmm. we were picking up CBs and taking them, to, escorting their equipment all over Iraq when I was there. And so we had uh, sailors assigned to my gun trucks. It literally just sat there and rode you know, backseat just so that way they could sign for the gear and it could stay in the Navy before we dropped them off. And one of the things they always taught me, aside from their expression, gear adrift is a gift. Uh, they, they showed me that certain things are, you know, transcend specific service. So in the military, there's an expression, there's only one thief in the military, everyone else is just taking their stuff back. And yep. so that is one way to do it. But you're, if you have a um, if you if you start showing that you have to realize at a certain point in time somebody's going to be so without stuff that a functional warship just it's dead in space, yeah. and, and you have to factor yeah. in those with logistics. There there have also been times you can't get the gear, and so the only other piece of gear you have is on the ship that's across the pier from you that has a part of their engine broken, and so you get the. People in the destroyer squadron who we've previously established maybe shouldn't have authority to sign a piece of paper from your captain, and your captain makes a lifelong enemy of their captain because you have to <laughs> and you go across the pier and you take 
their piece that works out of their gear that then no longer works and you put it in your ship and you promise or you to give it back the, and you don't uh, break it. Or you just get the miscreant E4 and say, I need this and ignore whatever else happens. So that's something is enlisted that I learned. Sometimes officers would give us tasks like that where they just, they needed something to happen. They didn't want to ask any questions and what they didn't know was good for my career. <laughs> and that, that kind of stuff does happen, right? Like you could put that in, like what you talked about, lifelong enemy of the, the captain of the ship in the port next to you. Like that's the kind of stuff you could add in though. And like turn a whole plot point on a novel that becomes its own spinoff series because yeah. you know, grudges happen. And I will say, you know, from the outside looking in and, and you two, uh, Jim and, and Joel can, can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but in the army, if somebody messes up, they go to the lowest level of authority possible. They hang them out to dry. So if it's a Sergeant or a Lieutenant and then it's done. So if, if the Lieutenant messes up, he has his career issue, but the Colonel, the brigade commander, whatever, they walk away like it never happened. The Navy will hold their officers and hang them out to dry. Like what private snuffy fell asleep on watch and broke something. Ooh, got to get rid of that captain. And so yeah, that's one of the things the Navy takes very seriously. The, the captain of a ship will be fired for things he could not possibly control that happened from, from very pretty, really pretty junior people on his ship. And so it is, I haven't actually seen this in a story, but in real life, it is common when a new captain reports on board, there's been a change of command. If you are one of those junior people who are in a position that could get the captain fired, it's very common for, if, if you blink wrong, for you to get fired from your job on a temporary basis of you are no longer qualified to be officer of the deck where the captain is asleep, for instance. And you right. have to you have to go back six months in your training and start over again and, and get his trust because he, he doesn't want to lose his job because he thinks you might be an idiot. The, the yeah. check Man, that'd be a really good plot point. I'd never he, thought about that, but that would be a really good. He has to trust somebody because yeah. he doesn't tell the Commodore, the ship was able to run under the last captain, but I have reported on board and I disqualified every single person. And, and now there are no qualified officer decks and there are no qualified helmsmen and there are no qualified aft steering coordinators. Right. Yeah, I could see that. What, what's your take on that, Jim? Since you were um, coming at it from both enlisted and officer, I was the young NCO and young E3 that gave gray hairs to people like Joelle. So, so what's your take on it, having seen both sides of that divide? I... Uh... <clears throat> Uh, let me see. Statute of limitations has run out. <laughs> so I, I love this so much. Might have been one of those miscreant E4s uh, <laughs> on a cross country through a certain Air Force base where we needed a start control valve. And we happened to park next to a C-130, <laughs> which has the same start control valve. And we might have had a toolkit on the airplane. So we might have midnight requisitioned a spare part to get our airplane up so we could leave. But yes, the CO, even in an aviation squadron, is ultimately responsible. Same situation, different parameters. Because, for example, in the P3 community, I was a, as a very junior officer, as a Lieutenant JG, was a mission commander and a detachment OIC going halfway around the world from where my squadron was based. 
So the CO right. was on pins and needles, A, because he knew me, and B, because we were getting stuck out on a pointy end to do some stuff that wasn't normal. And as he said, we gave him more than a few gray hairs before we finally got back home. But there's and, and that's we, still that ultimate responsibility. And what Joel said is absolutely correct. Uh, we had a situation where a XO took over command. And aviation is a little different. The XO fleets up to be the CO. And he literally pulled some people's papers for qualification. Because he said, you people are unsafe. I don't trust you. So they either had the choice of going through a fleet board or taking a step back and requalifying. So, yes, that is very definitely true. And you can play that in a story. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that being an interesting plot point. So we're going to pause for a moment while we shamelessly shill for the man, uh, and then we'll jump right back into it. So uh, wait one while I cue that commercial. Humanity will be free, no matter the cost. Deep in the Guatemalan jungle, buried beneath a forgotten Mayan pyramid, an earth-shattering secret sits waiting. Its discovery will rip apart the illusion that humanity is alone in the universe. Engaged in a life-and-death struggle for the future of mankind, Harry Rogers and Jess Cook are forced to protect this secret from the most despicable foes imaginable. They must race across the globe to complete Liberty Station, the first true interplanetary ship. Only then can they search for the shocking truth behind what they found. They have no room for error, because failure means death for them and subjugation for everyone else. Presenting Liberty Station, Book One of Humanity Unlimited, written by Terry Nixon. Purchase your copy on Amazon and learn more about the author and his works at terrymixon.com. I love Veronica's narration. So one of the things that you talked about was how sometimes parts are acquired uh, in, in a fleet situation. Um, but one of the things we didn't talk about is the role of new tech in acquiring some of that. So do you think that uh, it breaks the bounds of believability to think that like something like a 3D printer could create equipment well enough that you could get around some of those supply issues in the future uh, for, for like space fleet stuff? To me, it's entirely feasible that that could work. Um, I would find it interesting as a reader if there were times when it didn't work and if you put limitations on your printer and so that you made that part of the, well, if we, if we print this part, then we can't print the next part and you're running out of key ingredients and that being a, a consideration. Okay. I agree. I, as long as, you know, I mean, we're doing that now with, with 3d printing on, on small scale and on large scales uh, with different, production mediums and and things like that and and i think if you're looking into technology you know depending on what kind of technology base you're using for your story whether it's got you know nanites or or whatever else that you're you're using in your technology it's definitely possible and and even interesting to include that in your story uh i would just caution not to go like full haul it or uh like replicator or like they do on 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 star trek where they're, they're you know yeah. they they just ask the computer to make what they need and they have it uh, i think that 
um, I mean, Star Trek was very, uh, at least the, the next generation, the original series and, and kind of some, some of DJ's Space Nine, but, but in the later series, not Gene Roddenberry was very anti-conflict. And that was, that was one of the rules that they had in the series is they could not have that kind of conflict in the story. Um, especially between the characters and, and different situations it had to all be mostly external. Um, and, and so if you're looking for things like that, you know, finding that medium, running out of the medium, you know, having the things break, like Joel said, uh, I think those are all great plot points to use and, and definitely to use. And, and I think it's interesting that, you know, um, there's, there's so many things that are, are considered high tech in, in science fiction now that we're actually using in modern day military now. And, um, I, I, I don't think this is a fault of authors right now, but I think a lot of authors are still kind of, for whatever reason, stuck in like the 1980s in the <laughs> level in the level of presentation that they're that they're using to present their stories uh, and not taking into account the high level of technology that we're actually using in our modern day military and extrapolating those technologies and going, okay, what else can we do? Like I think a lot of people are are getting away from, you know, even touchscreens now um, in their science fiction. Like I, I use a lot of uh, virtual holographics, um, optical holographics where it's all uh, implanted in the eyes. Um, there's very limited actual physical uh, consoles that people inter interact with, even though in a, in a ship you're going to want that. Uh, because if the optics fails or the high tech stuff fails, you're going to want a, the low tech option to be able to maneuver and, and control your ship. Uh, I, I think that there's so many opportunities to raise the tech level um, without, without uh, making it too easy. It's like a lot of people now writing mysteries that are trying to set them in the 1990s because you don't have cell phones <laughs> and, and cell phones really ruin. I, I mean, how yeah. many, thriller stories that we knew of back then would have just been ruined by a cell phone because you could text somebody. And so I think a lot of people like shy away from the, the really, really high tech way to go because mentally or intellectually, they're trying to have that makes it easier. I don't want to make it easier. I want to make it harder. So they shy away from all that stuff I, in my, in my fiction, my, the, the series that I'm working on now is extremely high tech. And so part of the challenge for me is trying to figure out how to a put limitations on that tech, but also how do we make the story harder now? How do, how do we make the, the conflict harder dealing with all that new tech? And uh, I, I think those, those opportunities are vast and uh, I, I think could be really be taken advantage of. So I think that you run into two problems with that. You've got the civilians that write military science fiction or just sci-fi in general that might not know. Mm. You've got a lot of uh, people that have been out for a hot minute that they're writing what they know and they didn't keep up with the tech. Mm. Uh, and that factors in. And then I know I've known authors that recently served that were so afraid of violating what, what's confidential and what's not because it's easy to get mixed up that they err on the side of being dumb with stuff rather than risk Oh crap, I got the DOD breathing down my neck. For sure. Well, and more uh, than just the DOD breathing down your neck, you don't want to potentially cause your shipmates who are still in to true. maybe lose a battle or lose a war. 100%. Yeah. Right. So, Josh, you brought up an interesting point as you talked about so when you mentioned Star Trek. 
um, is that they weren't actually a military. I mean, for all that they're used as a space Navy, they were a bunch of civilians that just happened to wear uniforms right. and fly in their ships for organizational purposes. They were, um, I don't know. They, they, they're with teeth. Yeah. yeah. And so that changes things, but, but they also, that meant that, you know, where the military has to look at both functionality and durability because the average enlisted person is very hard on their equipment. I mean, there's a whole branch of testing new equipment where their whole job is to give it to the dumbest dumb grunt out there and see how he can break it so they can make it resistant to that. When and we, so, one of the first things we learned, so I was security forces in the air force and I like to call ourselves uh, security services uh, or the infantry of the air force. And we were like the lowest of low. I, when I went in, I told my recruiter, I passed as fab. I said, I want to be security forces. And he looked at me and he goes, but look at all these other things that you can do. And I'm like, no, no, I, I want to go there. And I'm like, and, and the recruiter's like, okay, well, when I found out after I got to tech school that everybody that went to every other school and failed out of every other school, they got put in security <laughs> forces. <laughs> and, and, and one of the first things we like, they, they came up with these, my first base, they came up with these checklists because we're dealing with nukes. And so everything we did had a checklist for it and we had to follow the checklist and they had these like triple laminated sheets and, and all this stuff. And the, the vendor that brought it to us were like, these things are indestructible. These pages are great. And, and literally with, as soon as he said it, somebody went and ripped the page in half and we're all like, that's not. Yeah, it's called so, the three bowling ball rule. They'll lose oh. one, they'll get one pregnant, and they'll break the other one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's how it's going to go when we first interact with aliens, especially if the Marines are involved. But 100%. That, that, that gets back to the idea of when you hear people talk about, like, and I've seen it in commercials, and I just laugh, military grade. And I'm like, uh, you keep using that word. I don't think that word means what you think it means, right? Yeah, it really yeah. doesn't. Well, and th so – I think there's a, since we're talking about space navies here and military, I think there needs to be a distinction between uh, military science fiction and science fiction with military in it. And okay. you can do if that you're, if you're, so I've written a lot of science fiction that has military in it. And I've written uh, my Valor series is, is mill sci-fi. Um, but if you're doing science fiction military in it, there's a lot more things that you can get away with uh, in your reader base then you probably wouldn't get away with it if you're rewriting military science fiction. For instance, uh, the first 10 books of Honor Harrington is mill sci-fi. Like yeah. it's, it's high level political, high ranking mill sci-fi. Um, if you read like, um, Oh, I don't know. Uh, like some of Peter Hamilton's stuff, Peter, ha Peter Hamilton, he writes space opera uh, and he's got military in it, but it's not really, really mill sci-fi they've got officers and and some space fleets and stuff like that but they don't he doesn't write it like a mill sci-fi so he gets away with a lot of stuff that maybe david weber's readers would reading david weber if they were reading it comparatively they would give him more grace than they may give david in the same token because david is very ingrained in mill sci-fi and if you're doing the sci-fi that just has military in it you can kind of skirt a lot of the things that we're talking about here by just saying, well, I'm not writing mill sci-fi. It's sci-fi with military in it. Yeah, that's okay. that's one of the things. You know, and to me, it's the differences in the battles. For sure. Because okay. the reality is, if you game it out far enough, 
there's no way that a human being will have any interaction in a battle. It's going to be over and done before the human even has a chance to react, especially if it's anything less than a half a million miles. You know, if it's outside of that, Mm -hmm. you know, you're going to make a shot and then you're going to have to sit there and wait and see whether you'll ever die. 100%. You know who writes that very well is Jack Campbell, uh, John Henry. He's writing as both now, but, you know, he writes really believable hard. And he was a ship driver in the Navy. So, like, he was – he retired as a a ship's captain. Um, And so that's one of the things that's hard to do and make it interesting. But that's where the interpersonal stuff to fill in those tense moments while, okay, we shot at them and they shot at us and who's going to die? That's where all of that factors in. Uh, But that's where you have to – you have to set the premise for all of that in the beginning. Um, I, I think so you can sort of build that. You couldn't open a book like that without, you know, because the, the reader's not going to be invested yet Yeah, with that style of, of mill sci-fi. So well, I, I brought you here specifically, Jim, because of your, your Airedale experience. So I've long uh, argued that military science fiction should be broken into three, not two subcategories. We generically say, oh, space Marines, space Navy. I honestly think space fighters should be its own subgenre because anybody that's worked around jets knows that's entirely different than a ship. It's entirely different than a grunt and the mentality is different. The, the needs are different. And I would imagine that, that there's enough difference there to justify it. What, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it could, it could do that? Well, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. The problem is to be agile enough to do what it needs to be, needs to do it's not going to have the legs. So it's going to have to depend on a carrier type ship to carry it. Right. Now, uh, Jim, I submit to you that if, if you're writing rather than particularly hard science fiction, if you're writing science fantasy, you can come up with the conditions where you could have it, have the legs to do it if you wanted to. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, you could. I, I won't disagree, but I'm I couldn't write that. Yeah. <laughs> it's not what would interest you. Okay. Yeah. Right. But the other thing is realistic maneuvers. Mm-hmm. Because the one thing you're never going to do if you're in a fighter is go head to head with something that's going to shoot your ass down. <laughs> yeah. You're going to figure out some way to sneak around get behind him and shoot him in the ass. Yeah. And if Which you is really much the same between all, all the different kinds of militaries, we'd always prefer to be able to inflict damage on, on the enemy without them being able to shoot us back at all. For sure. Yeah. But if you really think about it and you look at it from an Airedale perspective, these ships are always shielded. Well, what's the right. one part you can't shield? The engine you and the ass. your drives. Right. So your objective as a fighter pilot has got to be get behind him and shoot him in the ass. Yeah. Now, how you do that is up to you. And that's one thing where you you mentioned Dave Weber earlier writing with a Sealax. He kind of sort of went that way by putting him out on the periphery mm-hmm. rather than keeping him front and center and trying to shoot the guy in the face. You know, if you want them to be a missile sump, yeah, fine. But how many people are you killing to be a missile sump? Right. You know, so 
I don't think you can necessarily get away with making it an entirely separate thing, but I would say you can definitely make it a component of a larger picture. I, I didn't mean standalone as in the, the, the fighters would need no support. I mean a standalone <laughs> subgenre within the category for people that want to read, you know, fighter jocks, you know, watch Maverick in space instead of, and goose in space instead of, you know, over the ocean kind of thing. I think you can like, it's just, a, it, it, it's, it's in the presentation, right? So if you're, if yeah. you're doing a, uh, a fighter centric story, you just really have to nail, like nail that, um, like the claustrophobic nature of a cockpit, like, uh, being out and, you know, star Wars did it really well, even though star Wars does a lot of things wrong. Um, like, in, in the empire in the empire strikes back when they're in the asteroid field like that's a that's a great setting to have a kind of fighter battle because it's not just open space where you're flying around you've got a whole bunch of yeah. obstacles and stuff you've got to deal with in that kind of setting i think you could do that like i said uh battlestar galactic i thought did it really well they they did the 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 standoff weapons for the 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 capital ships they did the the fighter battles even though it's kind of wonky sometimes um, but like you said, Jim, it, it's a component of a, a greater whole. Um, and, uh, I, I think that if you were going to focus on that, you could probably do, do some really cool stories with it. It's just how, how fantasy, like Joel said, how fantasy do you want it yeah. to be? Um, because honestly it's, it's what is entertaining, right? And, you know, uh, um, there are some people that want to read high level stake political moving uh like the 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 later half of the honor harrington books where they get into the big like political mm -hmm. like the big logistic type stuff like that is cool um to some readers but other readers want to be in the trenches too and so if you can maneuver that i think you'd be fine yeah yeah and with writing uh, writing about fighters you know there 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 has to be an end to it fairly quickly because how many times can you say get in a dog fight and describe a dog fight. Hmm. You know, they're, um, and yeah, they're going to be That quick. is true. One so, person is going to die. Yeah, you know, ejecting and, in space is going to be a little different because it's a lot of land to go looking for you from. Yeah. Well, your escape pod technically should have some kind of beacon on it. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> now, I've heard stories on how hard it is to find a sailor that falls overboard, uh, and that's one like two dimensional and a confined amount of space he could have possibly been or she could have possibly been in. Make that space multiplied by a factor of a lot for for actual space. I, I yeah. could just see that getting difficult. Oh yeah. So one of the things that gets me when you, you mentioned the maneuvers is you, I noticed it in a lot of sci-fi. I think we're as a community getting better at it, but everyone still writes like everything is two dimensional. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you see like star Wars did it where it looks like they're just reenacting world war two dogfights and world war two essentially in space, but they're ignoring what's below them and what's above them. Right. Like one of the things you learn in infantry is look up because the snipers are out there somewhere but when it comes to sci-fi naval stuff and space marine stuff, they ignore that. And so they just think on the plane where instead of in the, in the three dimension. And that's yeah. one of the things I, I see as room for growth. Is there anyone you think who does that well? Oh, 
you mentioned Jack Campbell. He did. Yeah. I think he does that really well. Um, nothing is really coming to mind actually. in in that, like trying, I don't know that I've actually read a book with that thought in mind about thinking about the three, three, I know that it's been done and I know that it is, has been done well, but I can't think of any really good examples off the top of my head. Taylor Anderson does a pretty good job of it from the ship perspective in the multi-dimensions. I think that, go ahead, Joel. Novel um, in the, in the, the Captain Leary series. I'm drawing a blank on what the title was. It was either the, the second to last or, or the last one that came out in that series where I really enjoyed that there was a shot at an earlier part of the battle that would presume to be a miss that because of the three-dimensional nature of the battle became very important later. And I'm not going to say any more because it'd be a spoiler. That's another thing that, that you, you, it's funny you mentioned that. that's another thing that people get wrong about spaces. Cause you know, when you fire a bullet on the ground, gravity will actually affect it. And eventually it's going to hit the dirt somewhere. And so it stops. And, and it, at a certain point in time, depending on the ballistics, it's a non-issue in space, because you know, the laws of, of physics and such, if you fire a missile and you miss, it just keeps going. And so no one ever factors in like, Oh, we just got randomly hit by a missile that was fired a hundred years ago or, or right. you know, Wherever, and like no one ever factors that in that I've seen. Torpedoes, well, it'd be affected by gravity. Torpedoes in the Navy, well, in, in the ocean, um, in theory, continue on and would become a floating mine if you didn't have built-in electronics to have it shut down. So because of, because of legal issues now, that's in theory not a problem, assuming the technology all works the way it's supposed to. But it's it's easy to say that in in your story, either those legal issues don't don't cause people to fight kinder or gentler wars, or um, you you don't set it to to stop being a ammunition after sixteen seconds or whatever the the length is. Okay. Yeah. Ask the folks out at Barking Sands about the torpedo that jumped out of the water after the helicopter <laughs> mm -hmm. oh that would be interesting so that's that a, supposedly a, dead and uh helicopter went in to scoop it up and it came back to life and jumped out of the water after him <laughs> that could be an interesting story right there so if you're listening look it up and then write about it and we want to read it yes. um <laughs> So that's, but that's just it is, is you could have that self-destruct like you talk about with maybe a torpedo or a missile or, or whatever. But I mean, some of what happens in space are the rail guns and those bullets. I mean, it's just, you're, you're throwing lead or, or whatever the composite material. Where's the self-destruct ability on that? There is none. There is none. So you're still going to have potentially those, you know, floating out there until they impact the gravity well of a planet, in which case let's hope it gets destroyed on insertion. Um, there are some planets that don't have the atmosphere to do that. And then you just hope it doesn't puncture someone's domed city. Um, but like there, there's, there, I've never seen anyone actually consider that though, when they write the battles and what that looks like later. Well, I think unless it matters to your story, it really doesn't matter. Right. Like, um, unless that's, unless that's something that's going to have some kind of political consequences down the road, a lot of the stuff I mean, a lot of stuff that happens off page 
ramifications or consequences from actions and space battles or I mean battles even in even even in present day battles where bullets go off and fly off and we have no idea where they go the the consequences aren't really calculated or known uh, even taken into consideration in most circumstances um, and so I think that you could probably get away with not covering any of that stuff and no one would because we're, we're, we're talking about like getting readers engaged and, and having them really draw into your stuff. I don't know that I've ever read a book where somebody fired a miss, like uh, somebody fired a missile and I wondered where did it go if it didn't hit the ship? Uh, I guess and, I'm a nerd because I always wonder. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there probably people are that wonder, um, but I, I, I would not take that into account when I'm writing it because that won't affect the actual story I'm trying to tell. You can have the Marvel Universe example of the Avengers destroyed this area and then now out of this you get the Scarlet Witch because her family was killed by... Right, right. Okay. So one of the things... Unusual, which is why it's interesting. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things I noticed just on my brief time on the, on the boats and then you know growing up a Navy brat is that a lot of the the ship labeling, like how you know where you are on a ship, all of it's based on the waterline. Yes. Um, so what happens when there is no waterline because you're in space? Do you do it from the, the keel, which I presumably would be in the middle? Um, yeah. or, or like, what do you think makes it believable for you? Like, there's no wrong answer here because we're making it up as we go, but. I usually well, go by decks and frames. Yeah. I do the so same I, thing. Decks and frames starting at the bottom and going up. Yeah, so you I just start, start zero at the bottom and go up. Yep. Uh, well, either or, it doesn't matter. I think if you want to put deck one at the top or deck one at the bottom, it doesn't matter. Um, or if you start frame one at the front or frame one at the back, it doesn't matter. It just needs to be consistent. But that way, in in my mind, I'm like, okay, frame thirty one is at the front of the ship on deck twelve, and I know where I'm at. And if you can work that into the story, um, and that way people can orientate themselves, that's what I do. Super simple. Yeah, frame one's got to be at the front. To have have a bubble with oxygen and a a, a part of the ship without oxygen and to define in some way the the people space separate from the the gear space if you're going to have a non-oxygenated part of your ship. And that would be similar to the water line. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes that makes sense. I saw one interesting Twitter thread, and I went to look for it to put it in the show notes of this episode, and I couldn't find it. Um, but this happened right before COVID. A guy was reading; a, he's a ship's engineer, like he designs ships for the Navy um, mm-hmm. as a civilian, and he was reading some sci-fi, and he was just charting as this guy was describing this guy moving about the ship, and he realized about two thirds of the ship was open to space because nothing connected to anything. Um, and so that's what made me think like, are we actually designing something or when we are just making it up, is, is it worth sketching out first? Um, cause it was, it was interesting to see his comical take on everything. Like, well, everyone's dead because no one can breathe. Well, it, it's always worth, <clears throat> at least in my opinion, it's always worth plotting out what the ship looks like and what your force structure looks like even if you never mention it so that you know in your own head what you're, what you're dealing with. Yeah, I agree. Uh, But sometimes I, I do the opposite though. And I only map out what I need for a certain thing that I'm doing. Um, I used to uh, develop 
in my first foray, like I think I was like 18, 19 years old. I'm writing the space Navy book and, and I had all the classes of ships and all the personnel that they had on them and all the weapons and all that. And I quickly found out that you do so much of that and all of it becomes noise because you're never going to use it. It, you're, it's, it's, it's all extraneous information. You don't need it. And, and so I'll say, okay, I've got a, I've got a battleship. And if I need to describe the setting of the battleship, if I need something for the story, then I'll use it in the story. But otherwise I'll just leave it. I'll, I'll leave it as a, as a not strictly white space. Um, but I only describe exactly what I need for the story and let the reader kind of extrapolate everything else that they need to know in, in on their own. Yeah, I okay. agree with that, but I do it just so I know in my mind so I don't have to keep going back to the previous book for sure. What the hell I said. Yeah. Oh yeah. I hate. And that's why I leave a lot of it out. Uh, and then if I put it in, then I'll copy and paste it into my planning document. And I go, have I described this yet? And I'll go check and see. And I'm like, okay, cool. I got it right here. What, what about you, Joelle? Um, when I'm organized, I'll have as my source document, the stuff I've decided, this is how it works and have highlighted. And this I've actually put, in print so that so that i know if i have a better idea which things i can change and which things if i'm going to change them i need to explain why it is i said something before that wasn't that <laughs> right oh yeah so what what i tend to do is i will write out the list of if i'm you know world building my own you know new universe i will write out the lists like how i'm going to organize the navy by ship type I don't go into like all the different like oh this class or that class within a destroyer family but but generically how I have it a generic like organizational structure and then I only fill it in as I need it because I realized yeah. when I wrote my first series I like had the whole regiment planned out down to Joe Snuffy on private squad whatever and then I would like as people die I'm like crossing it off and moving people up so like I had whole stories of career arcs of people that I never wrote about like, man, I wasted a lot of time doing that. I could have written two more books in that time. So now I just, I have an empty TOE and I only put in as I talk about someone. So that way I know I can go back. Yeah. Um, cause you, cause you can overdo it to the point where like, well, would I be better served? Like just writing the novel at that point. Well, and I think a lot of times, like we mentioned logistics a little earlier, but I think a lot of times, uh, newer writers can kind of get, uh, carried away with the logistics and then forget about the story. Um, yeah. and then they're writing, they're writing a whole bunch of logistics that they think they need in their head for them to make it work. And then they think because they need it in their head to make it work, the reader needs it in their head to make it work. And 98% of the time that's incorrect. 98% of the time the reader doesn't care. They really just care about the story. And if you're presenting that in a, in a, uh, a way that makes sense, uh, e even if you're, missing some things here and there it's way more effective for you as a writer to just focus on the story and not the logistics so speaking of the logistics this is something we didn't talk about is uniforms and rank structure so do you like it when people just recreate what we do in the modern you know basically american western centric navies and then rock it out or do you prefer when they make up their own widgets and call everything by a new weird name I think it needs to be quickly understandable. Yes. And so if if you're going to steal the the Turkish 
rank structure where you are commander of hundreds and commander of the fifties. That is really clear, even to somebody who's not familiar at all with the military. And actually it's in some ways more clear than a, a colonel and an army captain and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if you're coming up with brand new names, I don't usually like brand new names for titles that are that made up words. Okay. The, only time, the only time I come up with, with new names and I've only done it well, and it wasn't even new. It was just I was using like um, a a combination of like French and German ranks, um, where the, the I, I can't even think of any example of it. But you German narrator, what's that? You hated your narrator clearly. Well, I was I was coming up with um, like in in the German military, they have uh, I can't think of a specific example, but if they have a captain, there's a like a prefix or a suffix that goes on before the captain. Um, yeah, if you have an uber captain and an under captain, that to me yeah. is not made up. But if if you have if you have the blues and the reds and the greens, and we're supposed to memorize that a red is in charge of 20 blues and a yes blue is okay green. that yeah. to me is is maybe alien and so might be desirable for something that's going to be in the story for a short time but if it, this is going to be a major part of the story are, are you really sure that this is the best way to do it <laughs> Sim- simpler is better yeah yeah, yeah. I like the one. There's a there's an alien rank structure that Peter F. Hamilton did in, uh, I believe it was his his uh, Salvation series, and he had an uh, an alien civilization that was based on fives. They were called Quints, and they were con- they were connected. And uh, if I'm rem- remembering it collect- correctly, you had like uh, the first of five or the second of five or whatever, and and you could kind of get through kind of context who is kind of in charge of that particular group just because of the numbering. And it wasn't yeah. super complicated, but I think if you're writing a human Navy, uh, whichever demographic or, or nationality kind of backdrop you want to paint on it, simpler is better. Everybody knows what a captain is in the, in the, the military. The only, I think the only maybe confusion is if you go from like the captain of a ship to like an army captain or a Marine captain, who's yeah. the, the, the name is the same, but it's definitely not the same. O rank. Like that, that <laughs> yeah. gives some confusion there. Um, the captain of the ship is actually a commander. A lot of times, 100% or a Lieutenant commander or something like that. Right. And so like you could, you could get, I mean, you could already create confusion with that. Um, so I think just simpler is better because honestly, the reader, I, my personal opinion is the reader doesn't care about that. As long as they can understand this person is in charge. The easiest way to say that is captain or admiral do that. Yeah. If I'm going to make something up, chances are I actually will just pull um, archaic titles that we don't use anymore. So like coordinate is an old cavalry title that, but it sounds cool and it's got the gravitas. And if someone actually Googles it, something comes up. understand that it's military rank. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, the one thing that gets me is when they go, uh, into these uniforms sometimes, and I don't like the David Weber approach where, you know, cause he wants the fans to be able to wear the uniforms. Yeah. And I read that and I'm just like, would that actually hold up to what we did in the field when we're crawling around on our belly or, or whatever, doing insert stupid thing. And that's where they, they sometimes will lose me on the attire. I'd almost prefer if you're going to give it something stupid that you just don't mention it at all. And I could picture whatever. Do you guys have a preference as both a writer and a reader? No, I mean, I think you mentioned Weber and, and I think his 
his take on the mill the 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 uniforms was was obviously taking it from like the the uh Horatio Honblower kind of really proper like elite officer mentality of we're we're dressed up and this is how we present ourselves and that culture was very in at that time and it was very important to present yourself as an officer and and, it, and i think that's what he was going for in his books um and if that's what you're writing cool like go for it i i like to go with like jumpsuits like very very like comfortable wearing uh jumpsuits or 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 even if you're gonna put colors on them like star trek did for like gold for engineering or whatever like um just make it like again simple like don't if they're if they're jump black jumpsuits with gold trim they're black jumpsuits gold trim and everybody can see that and understand what it is i tend to write very sparse descriptions and let the reader for sure in their own mind Mm-hmm. See, that bugs me i want the descriptions i i anyone who's read any of my book reviews know like mm, no more is more not less is more but I, I realize that that is not the current trend and that's one of the things if you read like we started reading some of the classics just you know with my kids for of the science fiction and i read it to do the reviews for upstream reviews and i realized that those trends change because look read a sci-fi novel from the 80s and then the 90s and then the early the the expectations the writing style all of that evolves with the taste of the audience and so like sometimes you read um you read a book and it just it doesn't hit with you and you want you have to look okay well when was it published because it was written in a certain time Mm -hmm. you know um and and i give you an example as anybody who's read team yankee by clan i know who was it who did it harold coyle wrote team yankee he was actual tank officer in the cold war and he wrote that i think in the 90s you read it now and it's just like yeah the writing was a little flat but then you compare it to what else was out there and expected at the time okay well it was you know he was clearly better than some of the competitors and so you have to factor that in too when you're writing is the taste but man i, I would love more description i'm just saying <laughs> yeah what about yeah. you joel um whether or not a a character hat what what a character is wearing to me is for a uniform is because of my background because i'm not the typical leader but because of my background i'm going to get a lot more information out of it so if you're telling me that your characters are in the space navy and they're wearing jumpsuits i am interpreting that they are never doing port visits where they are representing their nation Mm -hmm. okay uniform they've got unless everybody in society and all the societies wears jumpsuits and these are their fancy jumpsuits. <laughs> right. right. Because on, on ship, we would, we would be dressed just like we were auto mechanics and that's what yeah. everybody would wear, including the captain. But as soon as we are within sight of land, all the officers are changing into these white ice cream uniforms with a lot of ribbons that are, going to get really dirty if we go anywhere near the engineering spaces and we try not to touch anything because we're going to be standing and we're going to be meeting the mayor and we are representing the United States of America. And meanwhile, the chiefs are down there probably still in their jumpsuits, even though technically they're also supposed to be in the whites and they're keeping the ship. <laughs> I have to say, I really like Navy whites. I, you know, everybody talks about the, the Marine dress uniform, which is great, but I love Navy. white. I'm sure the people wearing them hate them. I know I didn't wear it like wearing my dress uh, blues. I was in the air force, but I think the Navy whites look so clean. 
Uh, you I never have, had to wear them. Trust I never me. had to wear it. Never had to wear it, but uh, they do look clean. And choker whites were even worse. Them. Yeah, I, I felt that the dress blues, the winter uniform, was was a lot more attractive. Oh, okay. I, I had I had to wear them when I was at the military school, and so the whites are uncomfortable. And you, to make them look good, you have to starch them, and then starch gets really hot and it wilts if you're in the right temperature. It could be a miserable uniform, all told. Jelly yellow. Yes. Oh, yeah. But they do look impressive. I will give you that. So, well, so one of the tricks that we used to use was never put on our our jumper pants until we got to wherever the inspection was. <laughs> so okay. we were actually in standing in the parking lot, turning our pants inside out and putting them on. Yeah. And then walking to wherever we were going to be inspected and never sitting down. Yep. Oh, yeah. We don't sit down in whites. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I used to, uh, the, the, the cleanest thing, I, uh, it's not the cleanest, but the most particular I've been about my uniform when I was in is uh, the, the first, so we had guard mount and we would do the, uh, basically your, your first day on flight or your first day out in the field, we would go out for three days and then come back. So you had your guard mount uniform and then you had all the rest of the uniforms. And my guard mount uniform, I would starch and you couldn't even like you couldn't pin your arm and like it was the old BU, so it's not the like the digital ones or the multicams. Yeah. It was the old ones that they said don't starch, but everybody just dipped them in starch, and yep. then you you had a wing instead of an arm. You had a wing because the things were stuck together like this, and you were flammable, and, and you were <laughs> absolutely <laughs> flammable, and it was all. <laughs> when you're walking around and as soon as you're done with guard mountain, you take it off, you pass your inspection and you put in your wrinkled one that you just pulled out of the laundry. Yeah. It, and what, back to what you said, Joel, is the uniform, like if you take the time to describe it and you don't have to go too crazy to, you know, to, to anime level of descriptions, but if you describe the uniform, then how they wear the uniform can tell you a lot about the person inside of it. You yes. know, like is his uniform put together? Maybe he's a, you sure. know, one of the top, troops and he's he's you know he's a uh, conscientious maybe he's the butt kisser because he's the only one whose uniform is you know showing off mm-hmm. uh you know you can you can use it to as a descriptor of the character of the person inside of the uniform yeah and i mean i was saying i was agreeing with all this stuff about about the inspections and about you don't sit down in whites and all that yet at the same time um my my captain on the mccain i think he had probably six or seven pairs of whites because he would go out in town with, with the mayors and stuff. And he would have to, you know, go on the local subway with the mayor as they're showing them all around. And, you know, it would come back grimy and the next port we're pulling into, we're not going to home port yet. And uh, ships laundry facilities, they try, but you know, they're not really good enough to put that kind of uniform back together. And so you have to shift on to the next one. <laughs> yeah. I can see that. Um, and then, so that's the other thing is, is factoring in, I think just the, those little maneuver, those little details, it doesn't take much to show, you know, that you did a little bit of research, but if you've got people that know anything about the military, cause I would say a decent portion of the mill sci-fi readers in general are either former or wannabe military types. And so their expectations are going to be a lot different and just a little detail like that is enough to show, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. And if they believe you on that little detail, then when you, you know, wave your hands in the air extra wide, they'll go with you, I think. For sure. Yeah. And then if 
if you're going to have a a ship's complement that does not include a, a distinction between enlisted and officers, and so there are no chiefs because you are, for example, from a community that does not believe in aristocrats, and so you want the captains to have been seamen once, they, they might go along with that, even though most militaries now do have two levels. And if you go back a couple hundred years, pretty much all of them did. Um, mm. There are militaries that have tried, mostly communist militaries, to not have senior enlisted, and they didn't all completely suck. <laughs> but most of them did. Yeah. yeah so that actually... A, a lot of a lot of militaries suck, even with one hundred percent true. I think that that in and of itself is, I think, one of the uh, uh, probably the least uh, touched uh, parts of mill sci-fi is being and, in the military sucks. Like and I it's, because we love competence, right? It's yeah. fun to read about competent people. It's fun to identify right. with a competent person. Yeah. And then you'd kind of like to have their enemies be competent too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you can have different levels of competence. <laughs> right, right. So you know, that's I mean, in some areas and not yeah. others. Well, see that yeah. that gives room for for you know plot points. If you have an incompetent enemy and then when they are actually in one engagement surprisingly competent and they surprise you and you get your butt kicked because holy crap, when did they learn how to do that tactical ambush? Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's there's lots of room in all of those scenarios to make it believable. I'll say, you know, because we've got to start closing this up. Uh, if there are more questions, dear listener, I would love to have these three back and we can continue the discussion uh, because there's certainly what stuff we didn't cover. We talked about enlisted and officers and we definitely didn't talk about the warrant officer. Uh, I'm not sure they're real because I've never actually seen one at work. So so maybe, you know, but, you know, there's there's lots of stuff we didn't touch. But as we as we bring this to a close. Uh, I want your least favorite and your favorite tropes uh, in sci-fi. And if you want, I'll go first so you have time to think. Or if you guys are ready, jump in. Lead on. All right. So for me, the the least favorite is the the lieutenant, the junior enlist or junior officer who's always so incompetent that he gets everyone killed. It happens. That's why the stereotype exists. But if you have believable military there are stop gaps as in there's a senior enlisted person paired with him to say you know hold his hand or her hand and say you know I i'm sure that worked in training but that doesn't work in the real world and we'll this is the way we normally do it you know and and most of the officers are smart enough to listen to people that have been doing it longer probably than they've been alive i think my my least favorite is the um the alcoholic captain okay the, the the alcoholic grumpy captain that is just making mistakes. And then like, for instance, the main character would probably be the XO and then they take over. And I, I think that that it, it's done a lot. And um, I'm sure that there are a lot of grumpy alcoholic CEOs out there, but <laughs> yeah. I think that you could probably come up with a better story uh, uh, starting point than that. I think that that's one of mine. Okay. Well, I, I was going to say that, but since you used that one, I'll, have yes! to, <clears throat> I'll have to go with the lieutenant that saves the day. Okay. It's, the odds My of a lieutenant actually being able to pull off saving a spaceship, especially a junior lieutenant, the odds of that are going to be astronomical. 
Okay. You know, the, and he's always the perfect lieutenant. He never makes a mistake. And, you know, that just, no, no. <laughs> All right. What about you, Joel? What's your least yeah. favorite? My least favorite is when a character is female and they can do no wrong. And the reason that they can do everything right is because they're female and not because they've worked on themselves, not because they've overcome obstacles that somehow being female magically makes them able to win at everything. And it just frustrates the heck out of me because as, as a human being who happens to be female, I've gotten good at some things because I worked at them. And it feels to me like you're telling all the little girls that you're female. And so you try the thing and you will automatically win. And, and I know that that's not true. And mm -hmm. I just hate it. <laughs> well, everything now for the kids is a participation trophy. So that's where a lot of it's coming from, I think. I know it's traditional to, to tell the kids these days are, are, are doing awful and get off my lawn, but I, I, I want to oh, really get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, we don't want to bog it down. So I thought we'd end on a, on a good note. So for me, I, I like the everyman stories. So I enjoy when they show that, that conflict between the characters, whether it's just giving each other grief. Cause sometimes if you're a civilian and you walk in on two military people talk and it might sound like they hate each other cause the, the things going back and forth, generally speaking, I was nicer to the ones I didn't like than I was to the ones that I was friends with. And so for me, when you show that level of, of interpersonal dynamic, that's, that's one of my favorite tropes because I can relate to it. Um, just because, you know, you give each other grief because you care. I think that that's probably mine too. I, I like um, I, the series I'm working on right now is middle sci-fi, but there there are military people in it, and and I I really try hard to nail the I'm not fighting for the politician back home. I'm fighting for the person right next to me, and that brotherhood of the sisterhood of the the camaraderie that you have, the, the spirit of quarter that you have with the person next to you. I think if you can nail that, you nail Mill Sci-Fi. Like if you yeah. can make that connection between your characters and make your reader feel it, um, you can no, do no better because that is what in the military that's what matters. It doesn't. It, it doesn't matter. All the other bullshit. All the other like who wins the war or none of that matters to the people that are actually doing the stuff in the military. So if you can nail that, that is that is best thing that you could do in your story and that's what i love when i uh, and to piggyback as, a, as the military like to say off of what you said one of the things that they also I, I like when you do is when they show that camaraderie there's a there's an old army cadence if i die on the chinese front bury me with a chinese grunt and the sentiment behind that and you know insert whatever geopolitical uh, organization we have tension with at the time the sentiment behind that is as a general rule the average rank and file enlisted person in the army and the air force and the navy has more in common with their peer in the other service than yeah. they do with the officers that might be leading them or the politicians sure. back home yeah. so like the average grunt like my grandfather was a world war ii vet and he was a um, fought on the german front and he, that's one of the things he told me he had more in common with the average Wehrmacht soldier than he did with uh you know whoever was sitting back at you know the pentagon or whatever and yeah. i think that's the thing that's forgotten because it's easy to say well we have to hate the bad guy okay, but the average soldier is doing the same thing. He's either defending his home or he was told if he or she, if you don't enlist, we kill your family. Yeah, and and yeah. so like 
I like it when they show that too. The brotherhood of the fighter, the warrior, instead of just internet internally. Yeah. But all right, Jim and Joel, you get to get to weigh in and bring us home. Joel, go ahead. All right. Um, my favorite trope is probably going to sound a little bit like Jim's least favorite trope. My favorite is when you've got a small group of survivors who have to perform at a level above what they usually, what they were trained to be. And somehow together they, they make the, the destroyed ship able to protect the, the space station or, you know, the, the surviving Lieutenant Colonel does a general's job or, or whatever it is with, you know, this hand, not handpicked, but just the survivors of whoever's left. Mine. Rising to the occasion. I like that. Rising to the occasion, yeah. And I'll have to go with what both of you guys said, which is the everyman. And uh, I can give an actual example of that. We, back when we had the COVID hit, you see, and everybody had to get shots. Mm -hmm. The VA was giving shots. And they would shuffle us through. And then we had to go sit for a half an hour to see if anybody's going to fall over dead. <laughs> well, there were about 40 of us shoved in this room. And we had every service represented. So naturally, people started going back and forth. And it got rather loud. And the poor little nurse that they had in there literally got up and ran out of the room. <laughs> five minutes later, the doctor comes in and goes, what in the F are you people doing? We're going, we're just talking. He says, the nurse said, y'all were getting ready to kill each other in here. <laughs> well, yes. Little, little Hispanic Marine and this great big black Air Force sergeant, they're nose to nose, both to turn around and looked at the doc and went, what? <laughs> we're just effing with each other. Really? <laughs> yeah. And, I, I I like that. I mean, it's literally hilarious. Um, that that's that is amusing. See, that's the one beautiful thing. If you watch the um, the battleship movie where they showed the old timers coming back and how you could take the person out of the military, but you can't take the military out of them. You could almost oh, yeah. write a, a a series on the Greybeards getting called back and having to perform again because reasons. Insert. Yeah. Yeah. Here. So yeah, I just all right. I just put a uh, novella up about that very thing. Oh, you're going to have to uh, get us the link so we can toss it in the show notes because um, I, I would actually read that. Um, yeah. So as we bring this home, normally I would ask what you're, what you're reading, but we're at an hour and a half. So instead, Joelle, what are you writing at the moment? I am working on uh, the sequel to the Dabare Snake Launcher. Hold on. I'm going to put you on the solo screen so you can show that. Okay. I'm working on the sequel to the Dabare Snake Launcher, which is- Oh, that's a nice uh, cover. Thank you. Um, uh, Kurt Miller did this cover, and if I had been planning ahead, I would have brought the actual book that I could hold up better. Um, I am not far enough along to give you a, a pitch for what that novel will be, um, and also it probably won't be in stores for another year and a half or two years, so maybe it's too soon for that anyway. Okay. What about you, Jim? Uh, 62,000 words into the fifth in my RimWorld military science fiction series and uh, trying to get it done by, so I can at least release the ebook copy of it at uh, LibertyCon next month. 
Okay. What What are you working on, Josh? Anything exciting? I mean, all of it's I've, exciting, but yeah, I've got uh, the trilogy I'm working on now is called Weaponize. The first book's done, and I'm out about halfway through the second book. Um, it's the easiest way to explain it is that it will be basically um, a uh, sci-fi with military in it, uh, mm. but kind of like uh, a Mission Impossible setup where we've got uh, several uh, specialists that are um, specialists that are are good at doing different things: a soldier, a spy, a hacker, and they have to uh, work together and solve like the the mission of the day or whatever it is. And uh, there's a big kind of overarching story story that that spans the trilogy. Um, but uh, hopefully that'll be out this fall. And uh, I, I think it, it's one of it's the high tech thing that I was talking about. So there's been a lot of time spent just looking at my ceiling going how in the hell do i pull this off and am i writing myself into a hole because i came up with this cool tech and now i have to figure out how to break it i like it so yeah and then you've got to convince your your wife and kids that no daddy's actually working when he's staring at the ceiling leave him alone he's not asleep you literally spent half an hour just looking out the window i'm like yes i'm working it's it's processing and because i was a grunt and i was a, a classically trained historian who used sand tables to understand terrain in battles uh i do that when i write books and so convincing my kids that daddy's not playing with legos he's actually working leave him alone right like no no i want to play too so yeah. um so i'm actually have the horrendous job of i'm editing four different projects at once never do that to yourself people oh, um so i've got two novellas a short story and a novel because the publisher that i'm writing for had said oh we just hired a bunch of new editors so so send us the first book before you're done with the third um uh, so I'm, I'm editing that um unexpectedly and then i am writing book two of my curse brigade series with james ward which is modern strikers you've heard me talk about it people but modern striker unit gets sucked in fantasy egypt and then the chaos ensues. And so we are about 40,000 words into book two. Um, and so we're about, I guess, a third of the way through where we want it to be. Um, nice. And we've outlined the third and the fourth. So keep nice. on keeping on. Very cool. All right, Joel, how can our listeners stalk you on the wild, wild interwebs if they so desire? I am very creative. My uh, website is joelpresby.com. And, How did you uh, ever come up with that? I know. I, I I guess I'm a genius at names. I I use my own name. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> and also Joel Presby on Twitter, Joel Presby on Facebook, and all the things. And I will have all that linked in the show notes. What about you, Jim? Uh, OldNFO.org is my blog. I've been doing that for way too many years. That's the primary way to get in touch with me. I do have a YouTube channel, OLDNFO. And I'm on Twitter also as old NFO. Don't do much on that. What is NFO? Naval flight officer. Okay. All right. And what about you, uh, Josh? How can they find you on the wild, wild interwebs? Uh, well, if you Google Josh Hayes, I'm the second one that you'll find because the first guy is a motocross racer who takes all of the Google space away from me unless you put on author or writer after my name. Uh, but my website's Josh Hayes Writer. I don't update it very often. Uh, I've got a Substack that I update even less. Uh, Facebook is probably where the, the best place you could find me. Um, I've got uh, the Keystroke Medium group, which is if you can't find Josh Hayes, me, find Keystroke Medium, and we're the only one there. And then you can find me there. <laughs> uh, and I have a Twitter, but I very rarely use it. So that's it. 
All right. And you can find us, dear listener, over on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. I promise we do answer. So send all the hate mail. And if you really hate us, send Seska at blasters and blades podcast <laughs> at gmail.com because she nice. loves to read that. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we do. We do. Uh, we have the Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. We have a website over at anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tag blades, where for as little as 99 cents a month, you can help keep the lights on. These shows are not free to produce. Apparently, the internet likes to be paid for the space you take. Who knew? So if you want to help us out, we appreciate all of it. Or you can support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section it is for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink Navy coffee until their head explodes. They will see sound and hear colors. I promise you, people. And that is one thing we didn't get into, but Navy coffee is not like normal people coffee. I think they clean the bilges with it, and then they drink it. True story, people. Never wash the coffee pot. Mm. That, that almost would start a war within a ship. I, I, I've seen yes. fights. Um, so thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. Thank you for coming, people. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. enjoyed it.